You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Monday, July 20th, Washington Post Live spoke with Saturday Night Live head writer and co-anchor of Weekend Update, Colin Jost. He discussed the making of the show during the coronavirus pandemic and his new memoir, A Very Punchable Face. Let's listen. Good afternoon. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. He's loved comedy since he was a child, and his life has taken him from Staten Island to the Ivy League to Saturday Night Live. Many of you were familiar with Colin Jost's work before he became co-host of Weekend Update, serving as head writer at SNL. And while his life has taken him on many jovial twists and turns, a twist of fate nearly cost his mother her life on September 11th. She was the chief medical officer for the New York City Fire Department at the time. And he writes about it and so much more in his new book, A Very Punchable Face, a memoir. Please welcome Colin Jost. Colin, great to see you. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to see you, Jonathan. That was a really cool intro. I've never had anything put together like that. Uh, I was better marketing than I could have done. So thank you. Hey, look, we're, we're a professional shop here. And, yeah. and we're also and we're also a news organization. And just before we came on, news broke over Variety. It's a Variety exclusive. Um, I don't have it here in front of me, but I took wild notes as I was told about it. Saturday wow. night, there's this report. Saturday Night Live is going to looking at coming back to the studio um, to do production, not with a live audience. Is there, do you know anything about this? Is this news to you? What can you tell us? It is news to me. Any, any update on logistics uh, from the show at this point in the summer, I promise you, is news to me. Um, it, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. If we could get back in the studio and do it, uh, that would be great. I have no idea. If there isn't an audience, I don't know what that will feel like. It may make the uh, space feel very cavernous very quickly, but um, we'll see. I, it would be cool if we can even do the show there. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up the issue of the audience because uh, when the pandemic hit, Saturday Night Live, like a lot of us, had to go through a transition period of how do we do what we do under normal times now that they're all, we're all locked down at home. And SNL was able to have shows this past spring how were you able to pull that off with all of you splattered all over the country or all over the world? I have no idea where anyone was. Yeah, I, I still don't know where some people are. <laughs> um, it was it was different. It was you know it was a different kind of challenge, and sometimes it was frustrating and everything felt very distant. You know, uh, editing anything felt uh, really hard because our you know our editors were doing such an incredible job. But they had whatever twenty different pieces to edit, all within you know two days basically of submitting them and getting them on the air, and so it, everything felt a little bit out of your control um, in an interesting way. So for a little while that was fun, and I think in the long run it would be it would be stressful to do it from home, and we missed all the people behind the scenes at SNL who do so much uh, incredible work to make every sketch look good. All the costumes look good. All the hair look good. You quickly saw how bad we all were at those jobs. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the missing of an audience before. And one thing you tried to do on Weekend Update, that first 
that first pandemic show was that you had you had laughter, people who were listening in to to laugh at some of the, at some of the jokes. How yeah. important is audience participation and laughter and seeing the reactions not only to to what you do at Saturday Night Live, but how you do comedy in general? Uh, well, it, it turns out that hearing laughter when you're doing comedy is very important. <laughs> I would say um, that's essentially the only reason you do comedy. Um, it would be like if you did magic tricks and then there was no uh, audience to go like, ooh, wow, how did you do that? Uh, if you just did magic tricks alone in a room, I, I don't think it would be much of a, a sense of wonder to it. And I think that's what it felt like. We we tried to have an audience, but it was so delayed, and you know the the way the sound worked, and certain people were mic'd really hot, and some people were barely mic'd. So that was not the the way to do it. But we tried, and then we found out that was bad, um, and we adapted, and uh, we got pretty clear feedback from people that it was bad, <laughs> and. <laughs> You know, I, I, I think it's going to be hard to not have a live audience. And I wonder if there's some other workaround for that. Um, they could just pipe in the crowd noises that they've been doing for uh, soccer games. You know, they'll just do that. Yeah. And then, then we'll feel actually great about ourselves for, for a while. For, for, for a few minutes. I was one of those people who watched that first night and was like, this is not working. But as time went on, it started, it, the show itself started working. It, it seems as though all of you figured out, including the editors and the fo folks behind the scenes, figured out how to do Saturday Night Live in the age of the pandemic. But how did the daily routine change in how you put together that show? For pre-pandemic, pre things got started on what day? Uh, pre Normally we you start remember. on... Yeah, we start. I know what I'm like. What is? What are days? <laughs> uh, normally, we start the week on Monday, and and obviously working up until it airs live on Saturday. This was a lot more formless in terms of there were pieces that someone had an idea for that took weeks. You know, like um, I, I had this idea for a song that was a, called "Let Kids Drink," and it was like about letting kids just have some drinks during quarantine. And I'd had the idea maybe the first show of the SNL at Homes, and it didn't actually come together because of music and, you know, the right timing of people who were available to film it until the last episode, I think. So things like that had a longer timeline than would be normal at our show. Um, but it was there wasn't like a clear day there. We had a read through every week that I think was even on Monday or Tuesday, which is earlier than normal. But then we didn't, you know, the production was all over the place. Some things were already in production. Some things people quickly did and edited themselves and handed in. Um, it was a weird rolling process. And I will say the nice thing about it and the thing that was that was I think we can learn from even when we go back to the studio is people went off and they did their own thing largely. And they had a vision for something, cast, writers, and they did it. And there was no evaluation process as it went on there were no notes there were no you know so certain things that probably didn't help but a lot of things i think stay, stayed pure because no one was was fiddling with them before you finally got to 
um, the, the final product. And I think that's a good thing to remember is what do you, what makes you laugh? What do you, what makes your friends laugh in a vacuum uh, and try to always be aiming for that, even when you're back at full production. Now, of course, you write a lot about Saturday Night Live in your book, and I want to read something to you that you wrote. No, actually, read to the audience what you wrote um, in your book. You write, people think of SNL as the this bastion of liberal extremists from New York and California, but we have conservatives and libertarians, and more of our cast members are from middle America than from New York or California. And like America in general, we have a lot of moderates and a lot of people who don't care about politics at all. So when breaking down the makeup of the show on a weekly basis, do you make sure you have a political sketch in the mix, especially due to the current political environment? Well, it's almost impossible not to. Um... You know, there's more. First of all, this this president is just out there on television, on Twitter, so much more than any other president in history, and 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 is an entertainer himself, which is why so many things have this weird, sometimes overly constructed uh, showbiz feel. Um, and so that lends itself to more on our show because he's already doing it in a, in sometimes a strange presentational way. Um, he also, you know, did come, he's been on WrestleMania, you know, he's, he knows that part of show business too. So that, that lends itself to, to more. And, you know, it's just, it's what people are talking about. So you, you always want to be, you know, listening to what's happening and feel relevant as a show. And, you know, but there's still, there's still lots of, as I talk about there, there's still lots of people at the show who don't don't care as much or are just bored of politics and want to do other things, other sketches that are really um, an antidote to that. They want to do things completely the other way that are absurdist or just untethered to anything because people want to see that, too. People want to break from politics uh, as much as they also are curious about it. Now, you also you also write in your book, after all, the majority of our show has zero to do with politics and the sketches you yeah. loved most growing up were rarely the political ones, parenthesis, except except for Janet Reno's dance party. Uh, but is this comment really true? And, and to your point, especially in the last five years, is it true that people really don't want to see political uh, that the majority of the show isn't political or political comedy? Well, the, I mean, just on a on a you know statistical level, most of the show is still random sketches. I mean, usually at most there are three sketches that are political, and that's even high. Most of the time it's two, sometimes one, um, and weekend updates. So that's still at least I don't know six or seven pieces that are are about something else culturally or about nothing at all, and. I think, while I think people are clearly interested in politics, I just think when you're growing up, when you're in high school and you're watching the show, the things you take with you for the longest are probably not the political sketches there, because those change over time. Or, you know, you might look at a political sketch from three years ago and it barely makes sense. Like the the people in it have disappeared, or uh, the references feel dated, um, or the jokes are specific to that week, whereas there are sketches that are, are not related to politics that really last and that are in your memory and you can you could watch now 
and make and, and you would laugh at and you don't need to know anything about the time to understand it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Weekend Update. Let's talk about Weekend Update. Is it you had to re-audition to be co-host of Weekend Update after you got it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did it for a really short period of time at the end of one year with Cecily. Uh, and we did it, I think we did like only six shows or eight shows together, um, like the last two months of the season. And then there were auditions in the summer, which I thought was uh, a bad sign that I was auditioning. <laughs> Uh, for the job I had already previously been doing. But also, I think it was right. I think it was understandable. And, you know, I learned and got better even from that audition process. Um, and and I think it need, you know, we needed to figure out how to do it better. And, you know, I certainly had to figure out how to be better at it. So all the criticism that came early on, I, I, I don't... Um, I don't really begrudge people that criticism because I felt it myself, even at the time of, of wanting to get better faster and learn it better. And, you know, uh, just, just be more myself on camera. And that, that took a longer than I, than I realized it would. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about weekend update is the, the relationship or the, the camaraderie between you and Michael Che. And my favorite thing that you guys do is write jokes for each other that you don't see until you're right there. You are right there on set. And Michael Che almost always, no, always writes a really hard hitting race based <laughs> joke, race based joke for you. Uh, who came up with that idea of you giving each other giving each other jokes? I, you know, I don't remember honestly. I you know, I think it it came about very naturally in the office of of us talking with the update writers and us talking about an idea for. I think it started with uh, around Christmas, like it was a Christmas show, and we had the idea of like gifting each other jokes. Um, <laughs> And and that turned into and then at some point it was kind of like, well, maybe it's more interesting if we haven't read them yet, because that's its own. You know, that's kind of taking advantage of the fact that we are a live TV show. I mean, if you do that and it's taped, there's not really any drama or excitement in it. But when you're when you're out there live and you don't know what you're about to say and you're committed to saying it that is that's a pretty terrifying moment and, and a thrilling moment it is a um you definitely feel alive uh, in that moment and and it is uh not knowing what's coming seeing a graphic that comes up that's that's rosa parks it's a pretty that's a scary that's a scary moment oh yeah i was wa i was watching and um, your reactions, I think, are what make what make the joke and make that say. I know you're saying you're like, no, God, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I mean, I feel no, but I feel for you in that moment because I know it's going to be good. In the time that you're doing Saturday Night Live, you were also doing stand-up comedy. Um, you were doing it what four nights a week. Did that help you at all in terms of your being head writer at Saturday Night Live and your job at Saturday Night Live? You know, it helped me. It helped me as a performer, which is why I did it. I, that's what I wanted to get better at. And, and if you're a stand-up comedian, you know you'd like to be doing stand-up, and you you need to be doing stand-up every night. You, I, I would have preferred to be doing it every night. With our job, 
that was physically impossible. So making that time as when I was a staff writer to still go and do four four nights a week was really the maximum that I could be doing um, as evidenced by lots of relationships that were suffering as a result of it. And, you know, even when I was, and then we had an off week from SNL and I was touring and on the road and I would do, you know, eight shows in a weekend um, on the one off week from SNL. But I, I needed to do that and I wanted to do that because I knew down the road I wanted to perform and not just be writing behind the scenes. And I missed performing from childhood uh, and I missed stand up. So that was, I knew I needed to keep that alive. And it really helped with, eventually it helped, you know, build any kind of confidence as a performer, but it hurt for a while. My writing and, and being a head writer, it hurt for a little while because I was trying to do too much and I really had to pare down and, and focus on update and, and just performing for a while because it was, it was impossible to keep all those balls in the air. Mm -hmm. um, Colin, I have a question here from Greg Spano uh, from Missouri. He asks, what are the best and worst things about being an SNL member? The best thing by far is you're at a job and you're forced to go to a job every day that is full of really funny people. It is, it's why most of us got into comedy. When you're around funny people and you're laughing a lot, no matter what else is going on in the world, that is a, a huge relief and, an, and, a, and a cathartic thing. Um, and it's just, it just makes life so much more fun. Um, there's all these weird stresses of the job and anxieties of the job that never go away and you never really feel comfortable there. But the thing that you, you always do feel is someone at work is going to make me laugh really hard today. And I, and that is, I don't take that for granted because that's obviously not most jobs. Um, that, that I think is the best and, and really the friendships that have come from there that I'll have for the rest of my life, um, are, 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 you know, are like miracles kind of because you just don't you don't know if you'll ever find people that are, are your people like that. Um, and then the worst thing, I think the worst thing is just getting in your own head all the time and feeling lost and feeling like you're not you don't have confidence or you're not funny um, or whatever you're working on is not good. Um, that judgment that happens every week at our show. So many of your sketches get cut. Um, so many of your sketches die in front of either your audience, your peer audience at the table read or the live audience at the show, at dress rehearsal. And that's, that's just, you know, you, you think you figured it out and then you realize you have not figured it out at all. And that's just, that's just hard. And so keeping, maintaining that idea of, I want to do what I really think is, is good work and funny work and not being swayed or deterred when things don't go well. That's the hardest thing to, to maintain. You know, in the book, you, um, in the epilogue, you write about struggling with whether to stay with Saturday Night Live. I mean, you write, I'm preparing mentally to leave SNL in the near future, which is a very scary sentence to write, even though it's intentionally vague. And <laughs> that jumped out at me, especially after your interview with Terry Gross of NPR, where you, you talked a lot about how it was difficult for you to articulate what's in your head. And so I'm wondering, did you put this in writing about your being trying to get mentally prepared to leave Saturday Night Live 
because you want to have the conversation, you're trying to ha have the conversation, but the only way you can get this conversation started is if you put it down on paper to force someone to have the conversation with you. I honestly did not think about that until you just asked me, but I think that's true. I think that's probably <laughs> why um, I didn't, I mean, obviously I thought about that when I was writing that sentence, I thought about it, but I didn't connect it to the beginning of the book where I, I, I quote Joan Didion because I thought she had such a great line of uh, that she never knows what she really thinks until she writes it down. And I thought that described so much of how I think about things in life and how I feel about things. I'll, you, can, you can talk through all these different things, but when you take the time and you write it down, it does force you to kind of consider really what you think about something and, and how you feel about something. And that I'm sure in an unconscious way, I, I, I probably wrote that so that I was forcing myself to kind of even have a vague time frame in mind or or to have that conversation with myself and and hopefully be less afraid of that decision. Um, we've got about five minutes left and there's so much in your book. There's, um, you know, being uh, growing up in Staten Island, going to Harvard, um, being a nerd among other nerds and the things you went through, being a journalist for a little bit and you got out. <laughs> got out. Clawed my way out. Um, and then also, as I mentioned in the intro, your mother having survived um, being there at what is now known as, as Ground Zero and surviving, you, you write about uh, what you heard about how your mother survived it. And you're seeing her for the first time after that, she drove up to Harvard to see you. Can you talk a little bit about that? It was it was a moment that I look back on now and understand the power of the moment so much more now than I even did there uh, then because you know then you're I was whatever 18 19 and you don't you know it's so hard to process everything when you're that age and and also how to process how much she held back from me in order to not further traumatize me, you know, and things she didn't share uh, until much later because she wanted to wanted me to not be not that not not to be on my mind in the same way it was weighing on her mind. And she came to visit me. It was the first day off uh, that she had taken from being at ground zero or being at the the medical office treating firefighters. The first day off she had taken in in like two months after uh, after September 11th and that she just drove up and surprised me and came up and it was uh, it was a really special moment and she really came I think because she needed uh, as she said a hug and I think she needed to feel like you know that we were still um, that we were still okay um, because we hadn't we hadn't seen each other and hadn't talked really almost at all in that whole period of time. Um, so it, it was, I, I love that she did it that way. It was, it's very telling of my mom to do it in a, in a surprising way like that and not make a big deal of that about it, even though uh, emotionally she must've been a wreck and it must've been such a um, weird homecoming moment. I remember how much she 
cried even dropping me off at school. And so uh, to come back and see me uh, in that in that context must have been must have been pretty heavy. And on a happier note and um, more fun note, you are engaged to Scarlett Johansson, the actress. Y'all set a date yet? Um, yes, and I'd like to announce it here on Washington Post Live. <laughs> and, and Great. If, if, I'd love to mention the venue and kind of run through the list, run through some names. You tell me, does it make, should they be on the list? Should they keep, keep them or lose them? You know, I'd love to go through it. We're trying to figure something out. I mean, you know, it's right now, it's not the um, ideal conditions to uh, gather all your elderly relatives. Um, and, you know, who knows? It, it's really hard. We're, we're kind of um, figuring out what's, what's legally and logistically feasible. So. TBD, but I promise I will log back in as soon as I know. Jonathan, you will be the first to know, and uh, Washington Post listeners, second through thousand to know. And of course, I asked that question with a pre-global pandemic mindset um, because I became a huge Scarlett Johansson fan when she ho when she hosted Saturday Night Live way back in the early 2000s and did this sketch with Kenan Thompson that was so, so funny. I can't find it on YouTube, but I'll try to, I will try to find it. Colin Jost, thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Good luck with the book. Congratulations on the book and stay healthy and safe and sane during all of this. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for reading the book and thank you for, for agreeing to do this. I, it was a pleasure to talk to you. I would happily talk for a couple more hours. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.